Summertime is heating up at Global Voice Broadcasting. Hot music, hot talk, and hot topics. All day, every day, 24-7. You don't want to miss a minute on Global Voice Broadcasting. My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin. A spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. You, yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserve your love and affection, Buddha. Ain't that the truth? Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I'm so happy to be here recording live in Los Angeles with a very, very special guest. Nicole LeBond is the founder of Cabaret Bar and Dance Fitness. She believes strongly in the power of movement, especially dance, to transform our relationships with our bodies. In addition to being a professional dancer and actor, Nicole is a certified Pilates instructor through Roman. Romana's Pilates. She also wrote a gorgeous story for my latest book, Embraceable, which I hope you'll all check out. Thank you so much for joining me, Nicole. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm well, thanks. I'm so happy to talk to you for many reasons. I know that uh, you and I share some history with eating disorders, and I feel like those stories and the healing stories are so important. I know you grew up in a very rural town in a conservative Christian family. How did these factors, this sort of climate, affect how you felt about your body early on? Ooh. So I started dancing um, when I was in sixth grade, which is actually pretty late for someone to start dancing. Um, most people, you know, start when they're like two or three with little baby belly classes. Um, but I really wanted to dance. So I started that when I was 12, which is like a horribly awkward time for you and your body anyway. <laughs> and then to be trying something totally new, like doubled those awkward feelings. Um, but dance was something that was very suspect. Um, in my family and my community, like it was, it was fine for like kids to, but you wanted to make sure that it was the good kind of dancing, not bad dancing, like no hip shaking, no grinding, no wiggles. Like there was definitely a delineation between what is good and what is bad and how you use your body. Like ballet was fine. Jazz was not fine. <laughs> you know, like there were these things that you were and were not allowed to do. And I have to say, I bought into that and I believed that for a very long time. I would say probably like until college. So, you know, almost 10 years of, you know, thinking that that was true, that there were, there were good and bad ways to use my body to express myself. And, I think that did have a sort of a silencing effect on me. Like, you know, if I feel like this or if my body wants to do this, then it's bad 
I need to shut that down. I need to ignore that. I need to move past that. That is not something that is allowed. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so interesting to me how these ideas can be so embedded in kind of the fabric of who we are that we don't even realize we have shame around it. And it's so kind of normalized Mm. to judge ourselves and our bodies. And you mentioned the awkwardness of that age, which I think we all relate to. So were you also learning mixed messages about sexuality? Did you have much sex ed experience? I know that we had health class in which it was discussed. And like, I'm going to say it was probably ninth grade. So I would have been 14 or 15 at that time. So that's pretty late to be getting that kind of education. I also know that we had something in like sixth grade-ish about that time. But like you came with your parents for like a little bit of the chat and then you had to go away and the parents got the rest of it. So it was something like this is how you should talk to your kids about it, which my parents, I'm pretty sure never did. If they did, I have like encapsulated that. It must have been really traumatic because I do not remember anything about that conversation whatsoever. Like, I don't, I don't think there was ever a birds and the bees kind of talk from my parents. You know, anything that I got came from church. That was, you know, sex is only for married people. The end. Yeah, I relate. <laughs> I, I definitely uh, relate to that silence you mentioned and the silencing effect it has on people because when you don't learn anything or when you learn that it's taboo and and especially because you learned a little bit but not until after you are already you know changing and developing and going through puberty and all that it gets so complicated and you talk a lot in your story which I so appreciate about the fact that you know eating disorders a lot of times people say oh it's all about control that's what it is like you don't have control in your life so that's what it is and I I think it's so much more complex than that and I think that it's not always the case either. And I know for you, there was a bit of a, I don't know if perfectionism is the right word, but how would you articulate kind of how you felt like you almost had to compensate as a dancer through restriction? Mm. Yeah, I was, because I started late, you know, I was always behind people my age. And because I grew up in such a very small town, like we had a dance school at least, but there was, there were not levels beyond, beyond just like being put in age groups because there just weren't enough kids. You know, there was no like teen beginner class and, you know, teen level four class. It just didn't exist. Um, so I had to sort of catch up to the people who were my age. And I couldn't really do that. I didn't have the, the technical background for that. So, you know, I wasn't the most turned out dancer I wasn't the best turner I didn't have great leaps or great flexibility you know there was none of those sort of qualities in a dancer and a dancer of that age that I could exhibit um, because I was just so far behind everyone Um, so I decided to be the thinnest like even if I was not the best ballerina I would be the one who looked the most like a ballerina So it was sort of a source of identity rather than of control. Interesting. Yes, that's a great word for it, for sure. So I know you, so you decided on this identity and at a certain point it became very 
disordered as far as your behaviors and uh, arguably that already sadly is a common disordered thought that we feel like we have to compensate somehow or, or measure up or that somehow thinness equals success and all of that. But I know that it became much more uh, dangerous in your life. And at one point, I think you ended up in the hospital. When did you realize yeah. that it was becoming problematic? I think I realized before anyone else did, like I knew what I was doing, (laughs) Um, but I guess I didn't really recognize until I was in the hospital, like the consequences of it beyond that. Like, you know, when you are in the dance world, even in a small town, there is a certain level of expectation. I think that, you will have, if not an eating disorder, then at least disordered eating. Um, so I think that that is something everybody sort of expected, um, including myself, but it wasn't really until I was in the hospital, which was right after my freshman year of college, where I was still going through a lot of the same feelings. I actually got accepted to college as a dance major, which was thrilling for me, um, But again, I had to work so hard just to keep up that, you know, I needed an identity. And so Finn was still carrying me through that. Um, And also the fear of the freshman 15 and, you know, those things. So it wasn't really until I was in the hospital that I realized the consequences beyond like, I know this isn't really smart, but it's sort of something everybody does. And I'm just going to do it a little more. I see. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I love that you talk about you both talk about how dance and and exercise. Basically, there were these complex parts of it because of really our societal messaging around it and the ideas of competition and what a great dancer looks like and acts like. But you also talk about the healing capacity of them. And you actually were really empowered and and continued to be empowered and empowering in dance, and I know Pilates also played a big role. So tell us how you began to turn that all around and heal through these very, you know, kind of arenas that had made things tough for you. Mm, I think Pilates really was a turning point for me um, because I, it's there that I finally learned that there's a difference between healthy and fit and thin that you might be thin and be healthy and fit. Um, and you might be healthy and fit and be a bigger person. Um, you know, it's through Pilates that I actually wanted to become muscular and become strong. Like those became more of a goal for me than the number on the scale or seeing my ribs or anything like that. Yeah, which is really empowering. I think that, you know, especially people who identify as as female and girls are not encouraged to embrace their strength as much. It's changed a little bit. but Mm -hmm. And even when we are, there's still this idea of like your muscles have to look a certain way. You know, it's like. Right. and, And I remember when I was getting into fitness purely to at first to get thinner. Um, 
which is long past, thank- thankfully. But I remember being concerned about like bulking up or looking too big. But so you're trying to be strong, but you're still again trying to like fit into these little boxes and all of that. And it's it's very complex. But one thing that I did notice is when I did start to do more with strength training, I started to feel more fueled by food and seeing food in this different way instead of seeing food as something I could either like fear and really desire but restrict or overeat and feel terrible about and all these complex emotions I started to feel energized and you could actually feel the strength of your body did Pilates and and perhaps dance too help you feel more you know connected to a healthier relationship with food Yeah, definitely with Pilates, you know, at that point I had been sort of playing with vegetarianism and, you know, like what I was quote unquote recovering at that point, you know, so I was trying to find um, a way of eating that really worked for me. Um, And I definitely learned then like the importance of protein and like a balance of things in your diet (laughs) and all of that so that you could do what you say, like fuel your body, you know, feed your muscles. Your muscles do actually need food to work. So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I know it's a gradual process. Healing is, is a journey for so many of us, for most people uh, who go through these types of things. Do you have those sort of moments or, you know, epiphanies where you realized along the way that, wow, I'm actually healing through this. Like I'm getting past the disordered part and going on to thrive. I think a big breakthrough for me was not having a scale. When I, you know, moved at one point, I just didn't bring a scale. (laughs) I was like, I don't really need that anymore. I'm, you know, I'm a lot more concerned about, you know, the tone of my muscles and how my clothes fit. And I just don't need that scale. And I still don't have a scale in my house. And that's a really, really good thing. Yeah, I love that. Same here. And I remember those those moments where it's like, oh, wait, I, I don't need that or I didn't use it. And it's not. I think so many of us go to the scale to try to be validated. Like we want to have this number that tells us we're good and valuable and lovely and all these things when – It has nothing to do with, like you said, you can be many different sizes and be healthy. You can be very happy, many different sizes. And that and, and, you know, the number of the scale changes constantly, like throughout the day. And and it's just Mm -hmm. so nice to not live by that, you know, to not feel controlled by this this digit for sure. Um, And I know that more recently you have gone through cancer. Would you share a little bit about that experience? Sure. So I have always been a really active person, you know, dance and Pilates. And like, that's what I do for my job. I teach dance and Pilates and dance fitness. Um, and about 10 years ago, I noticed a, a weird lymph node in my neck. Uh, at the time I went to a doctor who was an old white man, not to make generalizations, but old white men tend to not listen to young females. So <laughs> he was like, just leave it alone. It's fine. Like that was pretty much the diagnosis. Like it's, it's fine. Um, and this was almost 10 years ago. And then last year in February, that lymph node became huge, not just like 
oh, that's a little weird. I should get that looked at. Like, it looks like I have a goiter growing out of my body kind of size. And then Mm. other lymph nodes in my body started blowing up to huge sizes. And it actually took them a really long time to diagnose me with Hodgkin's lymphoma because even though my lymph nodes were abnormally large, I was not presenting any of the other like blood work signs that they were looking for. You know, at first they thought I was anemic and then they thought I had chronic fatigue and that if we could just get that under control, my you know immune system and my lymph nodes would go back to normal. And we tried, you know, all these different things until I finally got to the right doctor almost six months after I started really feeling crummy, um, who diagnosed me with, with Hodgkin and Zipoma. And as someone who makes a living with her body, that is incredibly shocking and really, really difficult because, you know, it makes it difficult to do your work when you're sick. And when you work for yourself, that's a really scary thing because there's nobody, (laughs) there's no salary, there's no sick days. It's just you and your thing. So that makes it very challenging. But it's also very challenging, again, in terms of identity. Like if I am not this healthy, fit person, who am I? Yeah. Wow. That's really powerful. When it's it's so much of, your, like you said, your livelihood and who you are and, you know, you take such amazing care of yourself and so many different. And then also not being able to do the work that not only is is your vocation, but I'm sure is really soul nourishing. But for I really have to commend you for being your own advocate and really continuing to to seek out, you know, the answers because how how terrifying and um I'm just I know my my thoughts have have been with you and it sounds like you're you're doing well now. What what was the sort of um prognosis when you first realized what it was? Um when I went to the oncologist he he really like he looked at my chart and he was like oh you have anemia and I said okay you know they've said that we've treated it nothing is happening and I said I also have this weird lymph node thing and he apparently it was not in my chart at all my primary care doctor had just not thought to write that down because she was very certain that what we were dealing with was something else Um, and he looked at that lymph node and he said you have either Hodgkin's lymphoma or breast cancer. Whoa. And I said, oh, there, there's, there's no way. Mm-hmm. And he said, we'll do some tests to make sure, but I've been doing this for 20 years, and I'm telling you right now, you have either lymphoma or breast cancer. Um, wow. And I knew that I did not want to have chemotherapy. I do everything you know, very natural and organic and, you know, I don't take antibiotics. I eat garlic, like, unless it's just the worst case scenario, I do not want drugs. Well, this was the worst case scenario. Um, Mm. my disease was staged at stage four. Um, they later walked it back to stage three B, which simply means that it's spread all over my body, but it has has not infected my bones yet. So it was actually touching my spine and it was touching a couple of my internal organs, but it had not yet infected anything other than my lymph nodes. So I had to have 
12 sessions of chemotherapy, so two a month for six months. And chemotherapy is pretty intense. It takes like four to six hours of you sitting there hooked up to a machine and then you feel kind of crappy. I have to say I was really, really lucky in that partially because I am so healthy besides the cancer, which is something my doctor said to me, except for cancer, you're ridiculously healthy. Uh, I responded very quickly to the chemo and by less than halfway through the treatments, um, my tumors were already gone and I never threw up, which is like such a blessing because throwing up is just my least favorite thing in the world. It's, I always say it's why I was anorexic and not bulimic because I just could never throw up. Uh, I never got that sick wow. and I responded very well to the chemo. Like I still had days where I was nauseous and I couldn't get out of bed because I was exhausted. Um, there were plenty of days that I actually didn't eat because I was so nauseous and I didn't want to throw up. So I just gave myself nothing to throw up. Um, but I never had that point where lots of people say that, you know, it's just constant. I did not have that. I lost some of my hair, not all of my hair. It thinned. I had a bald spot on top and I joked with my boyfriend that, you know, they say you start to look like each other when you've been together for a while. So I was <laughs> telling him that I was, I was just starting to look like him. That's what was happening. Um, I lost all my eyelashes, which was a weird thing. <laughs> oh, I bet. Yeah, I um, and I went imagine. through menopause. Oh my gosh. That's pretty intense. It's nice to hear that you didn't, you know, deal with uh, the vomiting and all of that. What is one thing that you hope that people can take away from your story, um, you know, from your whole journey? Because a lot of it has been so much about self-acceptance and really living authentically. What, what would you recommend to other people who might be struggling? Mm, I think knowing who you are is really, really important. There's a Dolly Parton quote that's like, find out who you are and then do it on purpose. Um, and I think that it's just really, really important and that it is not tied to your body. You know, even when I was sick, I was still a dancer and a dance teacher. That's still what I love. That's still who I was. You know, even though my, my body was not necessarily cooperating with that. And we need to be able to distinguish our deepest passions and loves from our body because it's really not the same thing. You know, we've been blessed really with bodies that are our vehicles for exploring this world and for making choices and, you know, living being a physical existence, we have been blessed with these bodies, but they are not us. There's so much more to each of us than that. And that, and then being your own advocate. <laughs> if people learn to just ask their doctor more questions and to you know get a second opinion, good. 
Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining me, Nicole. I just love her advice. I think it has really universal takeaways for all of us. And I also received a question from a wonderful listener on a related topic who wanted to know uh, Dr. Megan and Mai's thoughts. This question comes from Mary Lou. She wrote, thank you for the important discussions you have, including about body image. My husband and I were stunned to learn last year that our 22-year-old daughter has bulimia. She's in therapy and making progress, though it's been and will probably continue to be a very rocky ride. Meanwhile, she's dating a young man who, from our perspective, seems controlling. He's a gym rat, very image-focused, and she seems to be relying on him versus friends or family for most everything. We tried to share our concerns with her, and she was defensive, so we dropped it. To make matters worse, her best friend recently confided in me that the two are very sexually active and not using protection. She's already had one pregnancy scare. My heart is broken, and I feel at a loss. How can we keep her safe without driving her away? Thank you for this really important and thoughtful question, Mary Lou. Here is what Dr. Megan had to say. Mary Lou, I'm very touched by your question because I can, as a mother myself, uh, sort of appreciate that heartbreak of, you know, when you sort of see what looks like um, potentially a train wreck coming and sort of feel powerless or helpless to sort of intervene or to feel heard. Um, so first of all, I want to just say that it's really great and amazing that your daughter is in therapy. Uh, it feels like she's making progress because again, that therapeutic relationship, hopefully and ideally, is a place where she can be um, not only addressing the bulimia, but also examining uh, her feelings about relationship. And, you know, as a therapist myself, I could say that uh, it might be up an opportunity because in therapy, um, we're not sure exactly what that person might be disclosing. They're really coming from whatever their specific pain points are. And they're not always, they don't always have that mirror um, that they're presenting or bringing up other issues of, of concern or potential patterns. So one thing I could say is you could call her therapist and we call it, we sort of refer to it as a one-way send saying, you know, I know this is confidential. I, um, I just want to let you know as her mother, these are some of the things that I'm concerned about. And I just want to bring it to your attention that you might be able to explore it with her, her in some way in therapy. Um, Again, it's not that the therapist necessarily, you know, because of the confidentiality isn't going to call you back, but you've at least now put into the room uh, and into the therapeutic space what those concerns are so that her therapist can sort of begin to uh, sort of when and if those aren't issues that she's bringing into treatment, uh, begin to sort of look around and sort of assess um, and, and bring that up. So I think that that's certainly one thing. And the other is it sounds like you also have a, a close relationship with her friend who shared with you that she's not using protection. Um, and so, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, your daughter might be more receptive, you know, to hearing things from friends or her girlfriend than potentially from you as a parent because she might think that you have sort of your own bias or your own sense of how she should be living her life and she might be feeling judgment and therefore feeling not safe or comfortable bringing any of her concerns or frustrations or anxieties to you. So, you know, maybe reaching out and asking that friend whether or not, you know, she's comfortable speaking to her or other friends um, and how to help recognize sort of, you know, that cost benefit of not using protection. Because I think so often when, when we're young, we just sort of have this belief that um, we're sort of invincible and, you know, 
those are low probability events and they're not going to happen to us. I sort of call it rolling the camera forward. You know, we enjoy the sex, but we're not anticipating, you know, well, what if, when, and if you get pregnant or get an STD. Um, and I think it's really important that uh, we always help each other roll that camera forward and not just beyond sort of the pleasure of an experience, but to, um, you know, in time and what the consequences might be, even if they're low probability events and how we, you know, handle that or what we might do differently. But I think coming back to the original piece of it is the question is, and you as a mother and your instincts, knowing your daughter, who is she going to be most receptive to hearing this information from? You know, is it going to be from you and creating a safe space to say without judgment, um, you know, tell me more and really without judgment, being open and willing to hear her experiences, or is it going to be a close friend or this best friend, or is it going to be her therapist? And as I say that, it doesn't have to only be one person. I think sometimes when we get a consistent message from more than one person in our life, then that also can become sort of that light bulb or that awareness that, huh, it's interesting. I haven't thought or felt these, but if all these people around me who know and care about me and have my best interests at heart are saying the same thing or a version of the same thing, that also might help me to sort of take a step back and sort of contemplate or, you know, be willing to sort of take on a different perspective. Um, so these are a few thoughts and uh, I hope that that helps you think about those next steps and recognizing that in all of this, these are a series of conversations. It's not going to be one definitive one. And that's true if it's a therapist, it's you or it's a friend. It's really how do you create um, sort of that safety and that sense of uh, willingness to listen without judgment while at the same time being able to um, sort of put forth the things that, uh, you know, you kind of want her to have on her radar, you know, to sort of just notice without judgment for herself. I think that's the most important thing. It's not that you're, you know, giving her advice or, you know, that she doesn't feel controlled into making a particular decision, but that you're creating a space of openness and curiosity for her to reflect upon for herself what feels like the right choices. Love to hear how it goes. Keep us posted. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. Really, really good advice. I love that whole one-way call-in thing. I think a lot of people don't know about that, but that you can leave a message for a therapist and it doesn't, you know, interfere with anything. It can actually really help to get that perspective. And like she said, that person's probably not going to call you back. Um, but just weighing in, I think is really important. And, you know, having been through an eating disorder myself, Mary Lou, I can tell you that, what you and your daughter are going through, both from the loved one perspective and the concerns and also her behaviors are not uncommon. You know, everyone's experience with an eating disorder is unique, of course, but one of the across the board commonalities is that self-care is gone or really, really, really suffers. You know, everything kind of gets consumed um, by this this illness that kind of I always think of it as sort of like, well, like a controlling boyfriend, almost like a stalker, like this this thing that's controlling you. And you are so um, you feel almost obedient to it. So everything else kind of falls away. And and, you know, sometimes this means that, you know, people may try to deal with their emotions by having lots and lots of sex with or without protection, or they may not have any sex desire at all or, you know, but 
however it manifests itself, the risky parts, the fact that she's not thinking, you know, and obviously, you know, having sex or not having sex is, is not not the concern. But again, the, the risky part, the part where she's perhaps not thinking about her health. And it sounds like, you know, she, she doesn't want a, a pregnancy and, you know, STDs and all these things. And the other thing that I would just bring up, not from I, I don't want to instill more fear or worry at all, but I think that when when we get a sense that somebody is in a relationship with somebody who's controlling, I think it's important to recognize, too, that there could be a lot more going on there, just meaning that, you know, who knows how controlling this person is Um when our sense of self-worth suffers, oh my goodness, we really do end up attracting people who sometimes prey on that. And, you know, hopefully it's that, you know, he's on the milder end of the spectrum and she's going to grow her way out of it. Because the good part of all of this is, is she's in therapy. She's working through this. The bumps are all part of it. That is all so totally normal. But also it's good to know, I think, and and relieving to know that the more that we work through these issues and the more that we work to embrace ourselves and to really heal those broken parts of we aren't broken, but our sense of self is broken. And when we restore that, it works like a flashlight. Like you see all these toxic influences and, you know, hopefully she's going to grow right out of that. But I think it's really crucial to, you know, it sounds like you're trying to find this way to communicate with her without, you know, overstepping or feeling like you're going to push her away further. And trust me, I totally get that because I am a stubborn person myself. And uh, if my parents had said, no, you cannot date this person, then that's probably who I'm going to try to be with, you know, especially when I was a teenager or in my early 20s. So I think it's really cool that you're thinking about ways to do this in the most effective way where you can maintain that that sense of trust. And because of that, I will tell you one thing that helped me more than almost anything was when my mom approached me while I was going through my recovery and was still struggling in many ways. But, you know, you hide so much of it. And nobody, I thought, nobody really knew I was still struggling emotionally. And she one day took me out for tea and told me that it was time for me to find my own joy. And those words just struck me right in the soul. I hadn't realized that people knew that I wasn't so happy. And I, I'd been getting comments more about, you know, why aren't you eating enough? Or you look good because you've gained weight or, you know, sort of more well-intended but very judgmental in, in, in many ways critiques and criticisms and comments from people who just didn't know what else to say or maybe didn't have an understanding of eating disorders. But when she actually approached me on my emotional wellness, that really touched me and it made me think really hard about, well, wait a minute, she's right. Why am I not why am I not happy? You know, how how can I be happier? How can I really find what nourishes my soul and and gives me passion? And it was it was one piece of my recovery puzzle, I would call it, that was so powerful. So I think there are many ways to convey your concern in a way that builds trust and just lets her know. You know, maybe it's an email, maybe it's a letter, maybe it's, you know, my mom gave me uh, Leanne Womack's I Hope You Dance on a CD when we had that chat. You know, you can you can convey it in so many ways. Uh, and you know your daughter, you know, obviously. Um, so maybe you can, you know, I think it'll come to you. I really do. I think if you know that it might be hard to bring these things up. It probably will be very hard to bring these things up, but there are ways to do it and it's worth the risk. You know, at least 
if you voice your concerns to her in some way or your friend or her friends do or you do it together, however you decide to do it, those words and that concern will carry along with her all the baggage that she's holding and, and this world she feels like she has to hold up herself. She will remember that. So when she does have moments of of the good kind of doubt where she's doubting, you know, the destructive thoughts she has about herself, for example, she'll remember that. And she will be much more likely to turn to you. So I am just so thankful to you for asking this question, for caring so much, for bringing this up and bringing this important topic to the show. I'm I'm so, so grateful. And I'm sending all the love I can. And like Megan said, I hope you'll keep us posted and let us know how things go. Huge kudos for supporting your daughter and her recovery. So I haven't been in the studio since before last week. Uh, I was in D.C., and just before that, the Orlando shootings happened. I would be remiss if I didn't attempt <laughs> to articulate some thoughts. It's, it is impossible. It is unspeakable. And like so many of you, my heart has been completely broken. I'm, I don't know what to say. Uh, but I do want everyone out there to know how how much you matter. You know, one of the most devastating parts of the whole ordeal, I think, is that it, it targeted the LGBT community, people who already live with too much fear because of other people's judgment or their scrutiny. And that should never be validated because it's completely not valid. No one should ever, ever hurt, bully, or God forbid, kill somebody simply for who they are. No matter who you love, you matter. That you love and are loved, that all matters. And I am so, so sorry this happened to such a beautiful, valuable community and to our larger community, all, all of the allies and people who stand with you. If, if you are among the LGBT community, please know that countless are standing along with you myself included. And I wanted to share a special song with you all. Uh, I heard this song uh, recently, and it absolutely brought tears to my eyes and streaming all down my face. Before I share it, I want to thank our product sponsor for today, The Pleasure Chest, a company that not only sells incredible goodies for the bedroom, but brings beautiful support and inclusivity to the LGBTQ communities and people of all genders. They are fantastic. They've been a wonderful voice throughout these recent atrocities as well. Please check them out at thepleasurechest.com or click the ad on my website, augustmclaughlin.com. Now, instead of our usual outro, please enjoy this gorgeous tribute song, Pulse, written and performed by Nashville-based singer, songwriter, and guitarist, Ariel. You can learn more about Ariel at her website, imariel.com. That's the letter I, the letter M, A-R-I-E-L-L-E. E.com, and you can follow her on social media and her YouTube page to actually see her perform this incredible song. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I'm sending loads of love to all of you. Here we are now Take the last bow I'm so sorry you're gone 
To be different I'd give up everything Can I wake up now In a different world In a different place I don't know if it could change But isn't it a lot to take Because my heart Crashed down like waterfalls All I feel is pain It was then They took your pulse away Don't mean a lot Cause We're all bones and blood Hurting people Hurt more people Try to keep your heart soft Take me to different worlds Another place I don't know how to make it change can't make sense of something strange Oh my God, my heart down like waterfall All I feel is pain It was then They took your pulse away Don't try to keep it in There's no one else to Promise 